I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation, save that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and otherwise what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears. That's too much to hope for, to wish for, or pray for, so I don't, not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain, pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used and abused, an outcast, a failure, a disappointment, a sinner. No drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now, but you don't. You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all those glances have been about, and you take the time to really look at me, but don't need to get to know me for to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and you know me, you actually know me, all of me and everything about me, every thought inside and hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread, my past and my future, all I am and could be, you tell me everything, you tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me. And here in my presence, you say I am he. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you've shown me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And they all need this too. We all do need it for our own. I love this passage of scripture. If I could have one passage and I wasn't allowed any of the rest, then this would be the one that would keep me challenged, nourished, excited, keeping on, keeping on. I love where Jesus crosses all the boundaries. After the Four Corners Festival, well, I was getting a wee bit of abuse because I hang out with Catholics. And I was called a liberal Egypt. And we got, it was actually a wonderful engagement because it happened on the front page of a Facebook page, not mine, a friend's. And then it ended in the wee hours of the morning coming to some calm. This, uh, it was challenging. And I learned and yet, I wanted to go to this passage because when I'm called a liberal, I go like John 4. Religiously, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Jesus takes the liberal step. Woman, heat of the day, don't do that. Pretty liberal. Religiously, politically, gender, race, Jesus crosses all the borders in this passage.
in ways that rip up what the Pharisees saw as what it was. And later on, I would believe that it was moments like these that got him nailed to a cross. So I love that political part. You would know I would, but there's more to it than that, much more to it than that. It's the radical ordinariness of the presence of love that gets to me in this story. The radical ordinariness of the presence of love. God sits down with a vulnerable woman and undoes all the stereotypes and then in the vulnerability of God, yes, the vulnerability of God, he needs the woman to give him a drink because he can't get a drink in the fullness of his humanity and the fullness of his deity. And here in this conversation, in this short chapter of the gospel according to John, we have the radical ordinariness of the presence of love as so incredibly wonderful expressed in that poem that we've just had read. I love this passage. But when I get into it on a Monday going towards Sunday, I start off with asking another question. What did John mean in this passage? What did the editor John, what did he want to do? And there's no question that John, who wrote the gospel according to John, was first and foremost an evangelist. He was keen that people would know who this Jesus was that sat down beside the woman. People were reading this after Jesus had gone. Years after that, people are trying to share the gospel of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who was this guy who turned the Middle East upside down at that point in time? And John has an agenda. In his editorial, he wants people to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And interestingly, he uses different ways to do that. If you look at these first 12 chapters of John, you find that it's different ways that people interact and come face to face with the Messiah. Think of what you've got to compare this to in chapter 3. Nicodemus, religious, conservative. He wouldn't have been talking to any woman at the well. But he had questions and he came at night. The good guy, religiously, comes in the darkness. And then in the next chapter, the bad girl, maybe, we'll come to that in a moment, comes in the heat of the day. You can see the comparison that John's making between those stories as you read through them. But you can also see that John's saying, if you're a religious person, well, here's a way that you can sort of connect with Nicodemus and see where he was going. And if you have no religious affiliation at all, in fact, if you're a Samaritan and you don't know anything about the scriptures after the first five books, then listen to this story. And the whole way through, John has this agenda about being the evangelist. Ultimately, John's getting us to, you better believe it, I'm not going to deny it and I'm not contriving it. He's getting us to 1010. John is getting us in these first chapters of his gospel to that moment where I have come that you might have life and have it at all its fullness. That thing that we pin everything on in Fitzroy. Ten, ten life. Life in all its fullness. For Nicodemus, there was something missing religiously. For the Samaritan woman, there was all kinds of emptinesses going on. And if you notice in the story that Richard read to us, this passage from John chapter 4, we find that the Samaritan woman is talking about jars and drawing from the jars and jars and drawing. And suddenly you're back in chapter two and the water has been turned into wine and you draw from the jars what? The best life, 
the fullest life, the life in all its fullness. It's all here. And then I did a bit of wrestling with the text. I had a fascinating wrestle with the text this week. I had a wrestle with the text on Facebook with a theologian from America, Doug, who did our church weekend, and a minister in Amsterdam. And we were all on, because it's the lectionary, we're all in John Ford today, so we're all trying to get help from each other as to what's going on. And into that came theologians, writers, worship leaders. It was a sort of, I was sort of a voyeur on the end, thinking, can I actually be in this group of like thinkers? And they were getting very excited about the five, wife, five husbands, because they were suggesting that maybe this is not the story of old that we've understood it as, that this woman was uh, a bit of a woman of the night, etc., etc., etc. And maybe the five husbands was literally in the, in the way that the, the custom would have been at the time that your husband dies, the brother marries you, and well, maybe he only had four other brothers, or maybe there's no other kinsman to marry her, and maybe there's something else going on, and therefore she'd lost her security or significance because she was no longer married to somebody, and then maybe met somebody else or somebody else. They were going into that to the detail you wouldn't believe. In fact, they got it to the point where we were talking about, it wasn't about the woman having five husbands, it was about Samaria having five alliances with all kinds of nations that the Old Testament tells us about, and I thought, here, I'm too beyond, not beyond this, I'm too far from getting uh, any results in this, so I pulled back because it doesn't really matter whether she was a woman of the night or whether she'd had tragedy in her life and had lost so many husbands and whether her insecurity at that point in time was whatever. Here's the deal with this woman. She lacked security. She lacked meaning. She lacked a place in her society She lacked being known and being loved because the two are the same as the poet has said. And so as I wrestled with that, and I wrestled with that alongside Rowan Williams being disciples that we're reading as a congregation during Lent, chapter two, wonderfully opened up to us by Neville and Francis last Sunday night in our evening event. As I caught myself in chapter two of Rowan Williams being disciples and that bit where he talks about love and want, love and want. I couldn't help see that what Jesus was doing here was crossing yet another border. The gender border, the political border, the religious border, the race border, whatever those borders were between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish male, whatever was going on there, Jesus crosses Yet one more border. William says this in chapter 2 of Being Disciples. In the freedom of choice that we have in our culture that we live in in the West, we lose touch with a sense of deep desires that actually make us who we are. We lose touch with the sense of deep desires that actually make us who we are. All this choice, all this stuff, we find ourselves so consumed by it all that we lose the sense of the deep desire within our lives. He goes on, the sense of profound yearning for meaning and acceptance is by no means clear in our society. There's a yearning for meaning and acceptance and we're getting it in all the TV ads and the stuff that we buy as a result. He says, we privilege the consumer mentality. 
I'll have that one. And we fail to ask the deep questions about the direction of the desire at the root of our being. We fail to ask the deep questions about the direction of the desire at the root of our being. So let's ask it. What is the direction of the desire at the root of our being right now? What is our desire? What is our yearning? Where are we directing it? I think that's what's going on with this woman as Jesus crosses the boundary into the root of her desires. Nicodemus comes because Nicodemus wants answers. Nicodemus has heard Jesus and he's thinking, I need to suss this guy out. I need to go and I need to question him. Is he a liberal? Is he a conservative? What is it that's about him? The woman at the well doesn't even know what she's coming for. She's just coming for water. She doesn't expect to meet Jesus. It's not on her agenda or her diary that day. But as they're having this conversation and this radical ordinariness of the presence of God's love, he crosses a boundary border into the root of her desire. I can give you water and you'll never thirst again. What makes us thirsty? What's making us thirsty today? Not just the crisps and the exercise that Rory was getting us to do earlier. What is it, that yearning deep within us, the deep root, what is it that's making us thirsty and hungry? What are we wanting more of? And do we know what we're wanting more of? Or are we so brainwashed and so blunted down by empire? If I went back to the series I did years ago and I need to drag it out again, Colossians Remixed, where they talked about Colossians chapter 1 being that place where Jesus is all these things because the empire were all those things. Jesus, the firstborn among the dead. Well, all of that would have been given as Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. And so the people of the day would have been bombarded by Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. This is who rules you. This is who rules you. Empire. Empire is in charge of you. Empire will take your desires and empire will keep you down and blunt who you are. Whereas Jesus, the subversive him in the middle of Colossians 1 is saying there's an alternative imagining. Where at the depth of our desire, we are no longer blunted by empire but we are made alive by the living water of a 10-10 life following this rabbi, teacher, fully human, fully God, Messiah from Nazareth. And the empire blunts us today because it's not Caesar that pumps down at us. It's billboards and advertising and come here to have your desires met. I've read it before, but I've rewritten it. So listen carefully. We were in South Africa. It was the last day before we came home from one of our teams. Had all my students in a, a backpacker room. And we were all kind of doing a feedback. What was your favorite part of the trip? What will you remember most when you go home? What will you miss about going home? What are you looking forward to about going home? And then the last question was, what will you not look forward to going home? And I can see it right now. I can see where she was sitting. I can see her looking up at me. And with these sad eyes, she looked at me and she said, I don't want to go back to the relentlessness. 
Whoa. There was insight. I don't want to go back to the relentlessness. Relentless. Advertorials of diets and fashion. Relentless. Cinematic porn of loveless passions. Relentless. Greed's multitude of instant gratification. Relentless. The consistent pounding of our temptations. The relentlessness. The relentlessness. The relentlessness. I see a fracture and drift from our wealth and my soul. Filling my deluded empty dreams but not the God-shaped whole. I see a fracture and a drift from our wealth and my soul. Filling my deluded empty dreams but not the God-shaped whole. Relentless. The constant battle of winning and losing. Relentless. The myth of the privilege of choosing. Relentless. The seduction of all this momentary stuff. Relentless. The addiction of never ever having enough. The relentlessness. The relentlessness. The relentlessness. I see a fracture and drift from our wealth and my soul, filling my deluded empty dreams, but not the God-shaped whole. It wasn't the same relentlessness that the woman at the well was experiencing. But in the root of her desire, in the root of her desire, she needed to be known and to be loved. And she wasn't finding that in the world around her. And in that morning, that midday, the heat of the light, she discovered that her thirst at the very root of her desire of things was changed to worship. Not where the Samaritans worshipped. Not where the Jews worshipped. But this person beside her, in the spirit of truth, she could find herself connected in a spiritual way with someone who loved her unconditionally. No wonder she ran home. A few weeks ago, and I'm going to finish with this, I promise. A few weeks ago, I read Andrew Garfield. He's um, one of the priests in the silence movie. And he talks about basically the conversion experience he had being a priest um, in this movie that came out just a few months ago. And these are the things that he says, and as I read them before we listen to the poem again, as we read them, I want you to hear the Samaritan woman, the deep root of desire, and ourselves, yourself, myself. I realize that we're praying all the time. It's just not we're not conscious of what we're praying to. We're worshiping all the time. There's that human impulse to worship and to exult and to long for a connection with the divine. We are unfortunately in our culture being driven and guided more than often to worship things that are false and empty, like celebrity culture, like consumer goods, a pair of new shoes, popularity, being a success by modern standards, a nice car, a beautiful spouse, two children and a picket fence. These are all the lies that we've been sold. And then he says in his preparation for this film, given very easy access to worship, I find myself understanding that in a deeper way, and it really scared the life out of me and devastated me to be more awake to the mass brainwashing that our culture has been dragging us into. We have to really seek out how to cut the ties to it. We have to really do our work to do that and to help each other through that. 
Anyway, I had a year of exploring, I suppose, this idea of worship, this idea of what it is that we are truly longing for, and how do we actually go to the places that can feed us? It's certainly not McDonald's. It's certainly not the consumer culture we're in. It's something invisible and mysterious. And we get glimpses of eternity every day, whether we're looking up from our iPhones to notice. Longing. Deep root. I am the Messiah. Here is the water. You will never thirst again. What are we thirsting for? What are we directing our yearning to? What is it that's going to make us live life and life in all its fullness? I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation, save that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and otherwise what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves and fear. That's too much to hope for, to wish for, or pray for, so I don't, not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain Pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used and abused, an outcast, a failure, a disappointment, a sinner. No drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now, but... You don't. You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance. A man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all those glances have been about, and you take the time to really look at me. But don't need to get to know me, for to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And you know me. You actually know me. All of me and everything about me. Every thought inside and hair on top of my head. Every hurt stored up. Every hope. Every dread. My past and my future. All I am and could be. You tell me everything. You tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me. And here in my presence you say I am he. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you've shown me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And they all need this too. We all do need it for our own. The consumer world awaits you. Are we going to take grace into the deep root of our souls as we go?